Welcome to Canaan Bound Podcast, episode 38. I'm Kyle, a member of Christ Lutheran Church, a Wells congregation in Eden Prairie. We begin today with Moments with the Master with Pastor Aaron Nitz. Hello. The Word of God that we're going to focus on today is from Revelation chapter 21, and uh, it's portions of, of verses 10 through 21. It's part of John's vision of, uh, of heaven. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall. The city had twelve foundations. The great street of the city was of pure gold, like transparent glass. Wow! Can you imagine seeing that? This description of heaven goes beyond what our minds can comprehend or imagine. Heaven is too awesome, too great, too extraordinary, too wonderful, too amazing, too incredible for our earthly minds to imagine. Why does God give us such amazing descriptions of heaven? He does so to make it clear to us that we want to be there. We don't want to miss out on it. So it would make sense that we direct the focus of our lives on eternal spiritual things, right? Things like hearing God's word, talking about it with our children, recalling our baptisms, receiving the Lord's Supper should be very, very important to us, right? But unfortunately, what is often our focus? Earthly stuff, isn't it? Our jobs, money, politics, news, our toys, and so on. How important is the spiritual and eternal to us? Thank the Lord that Jesus made our eternity his number one focus. He came to earth to live, die, and rise to forgive our sins that we might enjoy heaven forever. Then he further gives us awesome descriptions of what awaits us to whet our appetites and refocus our lives on what really, really matters in life. Him, his love, his forgiveness, his word. I'm rejoicing to have an awesome heaven to look forward to, and so are you. May God bless you on the rest of your day. Up next, we have Tracy Fedke with her song, What If?, from her album, Child at Home. I have 
it's time for Freedom in Christ with Pastor Mark Falk. Does Christ promote sin? If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. Galatians 2, 17-18, NIV 1984. The great fear of the 16th century church was just this. If we preach to sinners that they are saved by grace alone, by faith alone, through Christ's blood and righteousness alone, if works of love are not required to fill out our salvation dossier, then sinners will feel free and emboldened to sin and sin some more. In fact, One peek into the typical Christian congregation uncovers a market baskets of sin, both large and small. So were these 16th century fears justified? Is more required? Is it really by faith and by faith alone? Paul deals with this question in this powerful verse. Luther is fond of saying that the world loves works. 
One local newspaper reports its church news under the headlines, Good Works. Paul knew this part of the human heart and the world so very well. He understood the opinio legis, the dominating influence of the law attitude in our nature. He knew that it would be a battle, both within and without, not to succumb to this part of us, not to rebuild the law as the heart of the New Testament church. The sins of Christian, of Christians, often public and sometimes shameful, harm the good name of God in the world. Nothing short of repentance is required. But the sins of Christians do not mandate, mandate a return to a church that centered itself on law instead of grace. In fact, these flaws do not even prove that Christians are hypocrites. We are sinners, pure and simple, always under attack from Satan, always prone to fall back into whatever our personal sinful set point may be. Paul says that this is not the gravest danger that the church faces. This is not the thing to fear most. What is most to be feared is rebuilding the New Testament church on Old Testament laws or even the New Testament version of the same. The law is essential. It guides our life. It keeps us from great shame and vice. It exposes our sinful nature. But it is not at the center of our lives or hearts. Christ is. The law is always the handmaid, the servant of the gospel. Ironically, the greatest lawbreaker is the one who rebuilds the law and makes and takes the focus off of Christ. The power of the church is not in its moral influence, though Christians are salt and light by their very nature. The power is in the good news that God has supplied a Savior and Redeemer for us poor sinners. Rebuilding the law, putting the law in the center, takes the spotlight off Jesus. The very sacrifices of the Old Testament had the opposite person purpose, to point ahead to the sacrifice that, once done, would never need repeating. The sacrifice of the Lamb, our scapegoat on the cross. Does Christ promote sin? Of course not. He died for sin, and the knowledge of our free forgiveness is the power that moves us to live lives free from sin. Lives that bring glory and not shame to the name that we cherish. If we are struggling with sin, the law is not the answer. Christ is. Now let's join Pastor Timothy Smith with God's Word for You. God's Word for You, Job 11, verses 10 to 20. I once read a claim that in one of Leo Tolstoy's longer novels, I think it was War and Peace, a conversation between two characters gets so involved and drawn out and intertwining and complicated that even the author appears to forget who's supposed to be speaking. Now, although we don't have that exact problem here, it's good to remember some basic facts about the speeches of Job's friends as they become more and more compelling. We have to remember uh, what our baseline is. They keep accusing Job of a sin, but he's not guilty of a specific sin that brought on his troubles. He's a sinner, but no one of his sins caused all this trouble he's got. Sinful as he is, he knows that he did nothing to cause the loss of his children, for example, and his property. Now we're continuing to listen to the stinging remarks from Job's third friend, Zophar. And here he's describing God's role. Let's listen to verses 10 to 12. If he comes along and confines you in prison and convenes a court, who can oppose him? 
Surely he recognizes deceitful men when he sees evil. Does he not take note? I I have to stop there. In verse 11, what I just read, Zophar accuses Job of deceit and evil, even if Job doesn't realize it. And that argument is no different than the other friends. Verse 12, but a witless man can no more become wise than a wild donkey's colt can be born a man. Well, that, that, that verse poses a challenge in translation in, in the second half of the verse. And the, the NIV has a good footnote about that. Either it means, on the one hand, that a wild donkey's colt could be born a man, or it means, on the other hand, that a wild donkey's colt could be born to a man, or tame, in other words. The meaning of the proverb probably doesn't change much either way. A witless, literally a hollow-minded man, can't become wise. Zophar is calling Job empty-headed. Verses 13 to 15. Yet if you devote your heart to him and stretch out your hands to him, if you put away the sin that is in your hand and allow no evil to dwell in your tent, then you will lift up your face without shame. You will stand firm and without fear. He's talking about lifting up the head and lifting out the hands. Zophar, I think, is recalling Job's words in chapter 10, uh, in 10.15, in fact, I cannot lift up my head, for I am full of shame. And Zophar wants to agree. He's calling Job to repentance. And although stretching out one's hand, in the beginning of verse 14, it's in the singular, that can be a way of saying that God attacks or is against someone, as in Zephaniah 1.4, I will stretch out my hand against Judah. Yet he also said hands in verse 13, stretch out your hands to him. And when a man stretches out his hands in the plural to God, that's you know having open arms. It's a picture of prayer or supplication, as in Nehemiah 8, when all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. So Zophar's picture of putting away sin is a, is a good image of the turnabout of repentance. When we turn back to God, turn away from whatever's been getting in the way of our lives of faith, and we hold out our hands in prayer. Verses 16 to 19. You will surely forget your trouble, recalling it only as waters gone by. Life will be brighter than noonday. Darkness will become like morning. You will be secure because there is hope. You will look about you and take your rest in safety. You will lie down with no one to make you afraid, and many will court your favor. Well, we've been talking about repentance, and when we repent, the troubles our sin caused between us and God become, as Zophar says, waters gone by, like water under a bridge, as we would say. He also says life will be brighter than noonday, and that's a phrase picked up by Isaiah when he prophesied about the blessings that come when God's people turn to him in repentance and in faith. Isaiah said, The moon will shine like the sun, and the sunlight will be seven times brighter like the light of seven full days when the Lord binds up the bruises of his people and heals the wounds he inflicted. That's Isaiah thirty twenty six. Our security and hope, our eternal rest, is certain through Jesus. We could call him our bridge over troubled waters. Verse 20, but the eyes of the wicked will fail and escape will elude them. Their hope will become a dying gasp. Oh, Zophar finishes attack on Job with this stinging couplet. He accuses Job of unconfessed sin and more than that, utter wickedness. Zophar's comment that the eyes of the wicked fail 
That that anticipates really the warnings of remember that rock song in the seventies by the Eagles with their eerie warnings about Satanist cults. They said, "My eyes grew heavy and my sight grew dim. I had to stop for the night." And remember Hotel California. Zophar thinks he's right in saying that Job should be condemned to hell for what he is not admitting. His his eyes are are growing dim. His, the eyes of the wicked fail and escape will not elude them. But Zophar is mistaken. Neither Job nor his friends understand God's motive for testing Job the way that it's been going on. This test is simply to show that Job will not turn away from God no matter how bad his life seems to get. It's not as if escape is eluding him. So far, Job is passing the test. His friends just aren't making it any easier on him. Maybe that's a good time to ask ourselves, how do we offer help when our friends are in need? Do we avoid them? Do we think that'll help? Or do we just want to avoid an uncomfortable situation? When Job was first hurting, his friends did, I think, the best thing they could say or do in the whole book. They just sat with him quietly. The true friend is there when he is needed. Ecclesiastes 4.10, if one falls down, his friend can help him up. Or Proverbs 17.17, 17, a friend loves at all times. Or Proverbs 27.9, a friend is known by good advice and earnest counsel. Sometimes I think we don't even know who some of our friends really are. How many of us would be surprised to find that some of the people we think are friends don't really like us very much at all? But Jesus was a friend to us before any of us were born. Jesus came into the world to lay his life down for us, to make us his friends and give us the gift of eternal life by paying the price for our sins. Jesus was the truest of our friends, is the truest of our friends. And his friendship means more to us than anything else on earth. In Christ, I'm Pastor Tim Smith. This is God's Word for you. We end our time together this week with Koine's song, Anchored to Jesus, from their 2006 album, Koine. On this boundless ocean, mighty billows roll. Fix my hope in Jesus, the anchor of my soul. When trials of life surround me, the storms are gathering on. I rest upon His mercy and trust Him more. I'm anchored in Jesus, storms of life I'll breath. I'm anchored in Jesus, I feel no wind or wave. I'm anchored in Jesus, He has power to set. I'm to the rack of ages Keeps my soul from evil Gives me blessed peace His voice stilled the waters And made the wild ones cease My pilot and deliverer him I all can fight For always when I need him He's at my side I'm anchored in Jesus Stones of life I'll wrap I'm anchored in Jesus I feel a window wave I'm anchored in Jesus He has power to set I'm anchored to the rack 
Sanders cast Drives away my sorrows And cheers me from the blast By faith I'm looking upward Beyond life's troubled sea There I see a mansion prepared for me I'm making it in Jesus Storms of life I'll breath I'm making it in Jesus I fear no wind or wave I'm making it in Jesus He has power to save You have been listening to episode 38 of Canaan Bound Podcast. This podcast was first shared in September of 2013. Thanks again to the musicians who shared their music with us this week. You can find links to more of their music at CanaanBoundPodcast.com when you click on support. Once again, my name is Kyle, and it was a privilege to be your host for this episode. We encourage you to visit wells.net to find a Wells ministry location near you. Thanks for listening. May God bless your week.